was the woman featured in Vermeer's Girl with a Pearl Earring really a maid from his household? Are there hidden messages in Leonardo's The Last Supper? Was a British painter, in fact, Jack the Ripper, exploring the unexpected, the slightly odd and the strangely wonderful in art history? Is the raison d'etre of the long-running American podcast Art Curious? That includes this intriguing proposition. Members of Italy's National Committee for Cultural Heritage petitioned the French government to allow them access to a chapel in western France long considered the resting place of a long-dead Renaissance master. The committee asked for permission to subject the purported remains of said Renaissance master to both carbon dating and DNA profiling, as well as digital anatomical reconstructions to answer a bunch of questions. Do the remains really belong to one of the most innovative and imaginative artists in history? What secrets of this artist's work would have been buried with him? And, most curiously, what did this artist really look like? And is his most iconic work of art, the Mona Lisa, actually a portrait of the artist in drag? Well, having enjoyed the podcast for some time, I tracked down the host of Art Curious, contemporary arts curator Jennifer Dazzle. Your current series, Series 10, is kind of myth-busting on art history, which I thoroughly enjoy, I must say. And you are often talking about people may know the the imagery even from seeing a film. So you were talking about The Girl with the Pearl Earring, which was a book made into a movie, um, versus the what's known about the truth behind Vermeer's portrait. I thought that was a great story. That one was really fun because I think that's something that people... If you haven't read the book, uh, Girl with a Pearl Earring, then there's a chance that you may have seen the movie. And that's something that I have had people come up to me over the years and say, oh, you know, I really loved that book. I loved that movie. Is it true? Is that really how Girl with a Pearl Earring came about? And I always feel like if that's a way to get you into art, even if it's through this fictional medium, then I think that's fantastic because it does keep you wanting to learn more. But sometimes it might not always be the correct answer or or even the way that things really actually happened. So that was my way of uh, myth busting a little bit, as you mentioned, and just trying to give you more of a basis. The thing about Vermeer, I think is really interesting is that we actually don't know a whole ton about him or his artwork. He only worked for a very relatively small period of time. He died relatively young and we don't have a lot of documentation or information about his career. So as much as I was trying to give you details about what that painting could have been, who it could have been, uh, there still is so much left at play. So you can see why there would be these amazing myths and stories built up around it and so many other works of art. I haven't added them all up, but I'm thinking Van Gogh is perhaps the artist who has appeared most often. In fact, you talk in one of the the recent um, podcasts uh, just how much his art means to you, but also uh, how much misinformation there is out there about him. Absolutely. And I think you're right. I've probably covered him more than any other artist with perhaps Leonardo da Vinci coming in in at a close second place. And I agree. I think it's possibly because he's one of the most 
popular artists today, certainly him, I think Frida Kahlo comes up quite frequently as well as one of those most well-known or most popular artists. But the same thing applies with him as does Van Gogh in that we build this myth around him, especially Vincent Van Gogh, because, you know, we think of him as being this ideal of a tortured artist and somebody who really suffered for his work. And that we, we like to say, you know, like, oh, what a poor man, if he only knew how popular he would become, if he had only lived a few more years, perhaps maybe if he hadn't taken his own life, then, oh, he would have had this incredible long, long career. And so I think it's really easy to fall into the drama of thinking that way. And of course, by no means do I want to belittle the fact that he did deal with some serious mental health issues and some physical health issues, but it doesn't help us necessarily to learn about his life and his work if we want to mythologize it so much. So even these very small questions about his life, like whether or not he sold any works of art or one single work of art during his lifetime, sometimes that becomes this little crutch for us to hold on to and say, oh, what a poor man, when perhaps we're thinking a little bit incorrectly about what success might mean for an artist who was still relatively young in his career when he died. And so giving you more information, more background about the art world and the late 19th century, people like Claude Monet, who also struggled for many, many years before he became a famous artist. I hope that helps people to maybe look at least at Van Gogh's work or the times in which he lived a little bit differently. So it just gives some more context to uh, this really mythologized man. I knew quite a few of the, the stereotypes, the myths, Jennifer, but the question, was a British painter actually Jack the Ripper, did get me to raise both eyebrows, I think, quite high. <laughs> That's not something I'd heard of as a theory. Yes, this one is so fun for me. It was actually one of the first episodes that I covered on Art Curious, and then I included it in uh, my recent book that came out in 2020. And this was a story that I heard about, oh goodness, while I was in graduate school still. So it was about 20 years ago. And it's the American novelist, Patricia Cornwall. She says that she personally very strongly believes that it was a British painter named Walter Sickert, who seems to be in her mind, one of the best fits for the possible identity of Jack the Ripper. And she has made this really a veritable second career over the last two decades in that she has spent countless hours and you know, millions of dollars trying to put her own resources into proving that this man was in fact Jack the Ripper. She's done everything from not only artwork analysis and talking to museum directors and curators and art historians to analyze his works to see if perhaps there's a way to read these as almost confessions in ink, but also has taken some of his sample correspondence and compared it to the known or somewhat believed to be known, uh, real Jack the Ripper letters that were sent to the police in the 1880s. She's also done some analysis on handwriting and on drawings, and even going as far to say that she's done some kind of DNA analysis, uh, whether or not it's actually verifiable or, or really quality evidence, I think is still very much 
still very much up to interpretation, but she very strongly believes that he really was Jack the Ripper. And she has written to date three books, really trying to prove this point. So it's completely fascinating. Whether or not I believe it is a totally different thing. I very firmly believe that art is in the eye of the beholder and that there are always so many different ways to interpret a work of art. And there's no real one way, I believe, even if an artist says, I want you to only see my artwork in this one particular light, there's still so much room for personal interpretation. And so I personally look at those works that, that, uh, this painter did Walter Sickert, but I, I don't necessarily see him as Jack the Ripper, but I do agree that there are some interesting correlations that you might make. If you're very keen into making those connections, you can see what you want to see is ultimately what I think. You are a very thorough researcher shines through in your podcast. Are there any art history mysteries that you've been burrowing away on for a long time, but struggling to get the kind of information you need to bring things together? Because some artists, as you say, like Vermeer, there's really very little information about him. That's absolutely right. I would say that there is actually a, a story idea that I'm working on right now, and I'm trying to keep it a little bit under wraps, but I can tell you for sure that it's about a group of artists who were women in the late 19th century. And simply because they were women working in Paris in the late 19th century, that's a pretty busy field and a pretty busy time for art. So there are a lot of big names that tend to overpower some of the lesser known artists. And so me trying to find information and dig in a little bit deeper on these women's lives at a point where male artists especially were really dominating the field so, so clearly. Uh, that one's been a little bit hard. I'm still trying to very slowly chip away at it, but um, so far it's, it's real slow going. A lot of art history, of course, is interpreting symbolism. And a couple of your last podcasts been looking at Leonardo's Last Supper and are there hidden messages in there. So are we still learning about an interpretation of paintings like that, which is so well known and so much studied? Absolutely. This was something that I think I came to ask really early on in my art historical career, because you're absolutely right in that we're looking at the same works of art that we've been looking at for the better part of 500 years, 2000 years or more in some cases. And so I definitely had that question when I was beginning and saying, you know, is there room for me? Is there room for someone if they're studying anything older than perhaps mid 20th century art? Is there a place for us to have a new look and a new interpretation. And I firmly believe that there is because each of us as historians, or even just as viewers, casual viewers of works of art, we can bring our own ideas, our own histories, our own interpretations to us and to those works. And so there always will be a new view and a new road of inquiry that we can take. And certainly the more that people uncover research and the new, um, ways of studying history and the new methods and methodologies and technology even allows us to even maybe find more information now than we could have 20 years ago, 50 years ago. So I think there will always still be more, or at least a different way of, if not new, but necessarily, but a different way to look at these older works of art. You mentioned that your, your research into this group of female artists, and certainly there has been more research going into women artists who have been overlooked. Uh, so, I mean, is that something that you really are interested in doing? Art history has been dominated by male artists, that there are lots of women's stories there still to be uncovered. 
Absolutely. I would say that that was one of those light bulb moments that I had when I was first studying art history as an undergraduate was that I was taking a course and I was learning about French revolutionary history and art history. And when my professor talked about the portraitist to Marie Antoinette was a woman, and in fact, a rather young woman who was about the same age as the queen, that was a moment where I was sort of knocked sideways in my seat because I thought, what an amazing position to be in. What an amazing amount of power to be given to a young woman in the late 18th century at a time where the most important woman in France could have chosen anyone and could have vetted any artist and most likely would have been asked to have a very, you know, very well-known and very vetted male artist. And instead, she chose a relative newcomer to have be her official portraitist. And this was a woman named Elizabeth Vigée Lebrun. And I would say that learning her story really changed my path. And it was one of the first moments that as a young adult, I really realized, you know, there's so many women that I had never heard about. I maybe had heard about Frida Kahlo, maybe Mary Cassatt and a few other uh, female names when I was learning a early years of art history, but hearing that there were so many more that just weren't part of the everyday conversation of art, that completely changed things for me. And everything that I've done up to this point, both as an art historian, as a podcaster, and, and also as a curator as well, that's been my favorite thing is to work with women and to work on women's work. I think it's fascinating. I think in many ways it's an exciting time in your field, Jennifer, too, because there is new technology. I mean, x-rays have been around for a while, but there are now ways of paintings being able to be examined uh, without damaging them, but cutting through the layers and telling us about techniques and how thing, you know, how an artist may have had an original idea and then changed it. And I, see, I love those stories, and you must too. I do. Oh, my goodness. I have to say that I I'm recently left a position as a curator at a museum here in North Carolina, where I live. And I have to say that that was one of the things that even I would get glossy eyed over seeing and hearing a conservator or an art restorer talk about their work and give us a little insight into that process, because you're exactly right. It's sort of hidden away from the viewer. But now we are able to really understand and study and use extra rays and other technologies to dig into those works in ways that we had never been able to do before. There was an exhibition I saw recently that took uh, old pottery shards and also mummies from ancient Egypt and did x-ray technology on them so that you could see what they were made of. You could see what was inside the sarcophagus of this mummy and get a look at it without actually breaking it open and seeing what was inside and therefore possibly damaging things. So I get as much uh, goofy with excitement about that kind of things, I think, as a general um, art enthusiast. And that whole behind the curtain, behind the scenes things, I think people are so excited about that in any field, regardless of if it's art history or not just getting that look at something you normally aren't allowed or able to see is so exciting. Is there a painting that you think you have looked at and tried to make sense of for the for the longest time? You know, a, a painting that has enchanted and mystified and perhaps most frustrated you? I can tell you for sure that I often get asked, if I like everything. And the question is, no, absolutely not. And 
I want that to be okay. I think people get very tied up, if, especially if you're new to the art world or you don't have the opportunity to visit museums very much. You don't have a lot of art experience. People come into those spaces and sometimes feel very pressured to not only want to necessarily understand everything or to feel like you get why it's in a museum or a gallery and that you feel like you have to enjoy it a certain way or like it. And I always tell people, I don't think that's necessarily the case and that some art is meant to make you feel anger or discomfort. It's not always about beauty or about joy or grace. It can be rather uncomfortable, especially in the case of contemporary art. Sometimes that's the point. And for me, I want that to be all right. And I want people just to look. I think just experiencing the art is enough of understanding it or a conversation. You don't have to get it necessarily, but I do want you to look at it. Jennifer Dazzle of the podcast Art Curious.